would you turn to your Bibles, to Acts chapter 21. Acts 21, we're in verses 1 to 14. I've entitled this message, God's Will versus God's Wisdom. Let me ask you a question. Any of you ever had a big decision to make in your life? Put your hands up. Anybody? All right, many of you. Others, have you had a minor decision? <laughs> Any of you just like trying to decide where to go to lunch today? All of us make big decisions, and there are times where they are at a crossroads in your life, and you got to know, should I go this direction or this direction? And part of decision-making, you get advice, you get opinions, but in the end, you've got to make the call. Paul is in that exact situation. God's calling him. His face is resolute. He's going to go to Jerusalem. You know how the story ends. It's not going to end well for Paul, ultimately. The religious leaders in Jerusalem want to take him out, and then he's going to end up in prison. We know how the story ends. And so this is the text where people are giving him all kinds of advice. And I bet you've been there, too, where you've gotten advice, and you've got to decide, is this what God's will is, and how do I know what's his will, and how do I make wise decisions? This is the text that will help unpack some of that for us today. Now, as you're looking at the text together, let's just go there right now. In verses 1 through 6, we see Paul's perplexing input. Now, it's in two parts. Verses 1 through 3 is his international cruise, and then we'll look at the second part. The international cruise, verses 1 through 3. And when he had parted from them and set sail... We came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and we set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And for, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Lots there. It sounds like a great cruise. I would love to cruise with Paul, except for the fact that he tends to shipwreck things, right? <laughs> He is not the guy I want to be on a boat with, but he's going to all these places, and he has just said goodbye to who? Remember last week's sermon? A tearful, emotional farewell to the Ephesian elders, and now he's on his way, kind of doing his farewell tour, tracing back all the places he's been. Now, a couple things. This is the last leg of this third and final missionary journey, and so he's crossing over into Phoenicia. That's some 400 miles, and he's going to make six stops along the way. And in this particular third leg, that's over 2,700 miles he's logged. And Paul is a man on a mission. Now, it mentions Tyre, Tyre uh, and the church in Tyre had been founded by some who had fled Jerusalem during Stephen's martyrdom. This is interesting because this Tyre, this city, was something where people found a place of safe haven because of what happened uh, to Stephen, right? And so uh, this is a big deal. Now, it then mentions the island of Rhodes, which also is the capital city. And the deal here is it's known as the Colossus of Rhodes. I want to put a picture up there for you. Have you been to this place? Have you ever seen this? Anybody? I don't know if anybody had seen it. It was one of the, oh, few of you, well-traveled. I don't know if it looks as good as this, but uh, that's a kind of a, a rendition of it. It's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Now, I've been to the Great Wall of China. I've been to uh, Machu Picchu in Peru. I have not been there. But now we've experienced very vicariously through Paul the ancient city of Rhodes. Now, now the internal conflict, verses 4 through 6. And having sought out the disciples... 
We stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul. Now, watch this phrase. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. These are the disciples entire. When our days were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with their wives and their children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. This is like second chapter, second verse, another emotional farewell. Paul is not a crier, but you can tell that this deal is, is it's, it's going to start to wear on him because he's saying goodbye to people he's never going to see again. Ever been in a place for a while, you've got really good friends, and you had to move to another place to live? Anybody relocated here in your life? All right. I, we did that from Huntington Beach to Minnesota to Yorba Linda to Moore Park, and now in Agura. So we've had to say goodbye to people. And anytime you say goodbye, there's an emotional connection, especially with these folks, because he made an investment uh, in them, and some from afar, but there's an investment. Now they tell him in verse 4, what does it say? You ought not go. And it's the Spirit telling them that. Now, Paul's hearing from the Spirit, you must go. Is that a conflict? Anytime you see in Scripture when there seems like, hmm, they're saying one thing, they're saying one thing, is that a conflict? No. What they're saying, Paul, if you're going to go, you're going to pay a price. You're going to see this repeated three different times where Christians who care about Paul or are committed to ministry are saying, Paul, are you sure you shouldn't go? Now, they didn't get it wrong. The Spirit is helping them help Paul realize you got to count the cost when you go. Principle, write this one down. Take it to the bank. God's provision may come at the expense of your protection. We think that living the Christian life is like, oh, we just do our thing and there will be no consequences for choices. There are consequences for choices. Uh, John 16, 33 says, in this world, you will have trouble. So if we think, if we're going to do ministry and not necessarily have harm come to us, that's not a promise that we can take to that. We, we can't promise you that. I can't promise you that. Scott can't promise you that. What God says is, if you'll trust me with your life, you're in the palm of his hand, he's going to go before you. And so, Duty and destiny trumps fear and uncertainty. And ultimately, Paul's obedience is going to be illustrated in this text. Now, vignette number two, Philip's faithful ministry. Let's see what happens next, verses 7 through 9. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Playa del Rey, Playa del Carmen. No, it's It's a word that begins with P. We'll let you say it and figure it out. And, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them. For, I'm so glad you're in the front row, Terry. You know, if nothing else, I get one really loud laugh. I love it. I love it. And so we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Note that. Who's this guy? Who was one of the seven and stayed with him, and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. This is when you want Pastor Scott to deal with that one verse. I'll just, yeah, we'll get to that. Just hang on, hang on. So let's find out who this Philip is. He's not Philip the apostle. He's not one of the 12 apostles. He is the first deacon 
uh, mentioned in Scripture. He's in a, uh, one of those seven deacons, and he's also, we know, an evangelist because in, in chapter 8, he leads uh, the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, you know, the whole chariot thing, and uh, he has this gift of evangelism. Now, note, uh, nowhere else in Scripture is someone called an evangelist, although Paul tells Timothy to do the work of evangelism, so he's kind of a special guy, and there's this gift to share uh, his faith. Some of you, by the way, may have this gift of evangelism. In any church, about 10% of you may have that spiritual gift of evangelism. God bless you. I don't have that. I have the gift of talking occasionally, and I do have the gift of interacting with people. Uh, but that turning that corner and being an evangelist, if you have that gift, we need you in the church. And that's the role Philip played. Now, interesting enough, were Paul and Philip friends? We don't know that they had ever met until this point because previously, what was Paul doing while uh, Philip is doing his evangelism? What was Paul doing earlier in his life? He's going around killing Christians, right? So this got to be an interesting connection for them meeting for the first time. And uh, I surmise this, but I think from the text, we can see he's last mentioned in chapter 8, verse 40, and it says that Philip was preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. It implies that he then puts down stakes and spends about 20 years, Philip does, in Caesarea, and he's doing his kind of home evangelistic ministry up and down the coastal plains of Palestine. And uh, we know that Caesarea is the capital. Now, this is important because Paul is inching his way back to Jerusalem. Caesarea is only 64 miles away. And again, it's not going to end well for Paul. Now, we get to this little verse that I ask, Lord, why is this in here? For unmarried, in other translations, it says virgin daughters who prophesy. Now, it's Dr. Luke. He's a master at detail. There's not things in there that aren't in there for a reason. You look prior to that. What is that? Does it have any connection to the, the Mediterranean cruise tour, farewell, say goodbye to Paul tour? You look after it. There is no connection to that. And I'm saying, hmm, now this is interesting. Why would he put that in there? Let me surmise. When we get to heaven, we can check in at Information Central. We'll get it on good reliability from the Lord, why it's in there. But I want to surmise this. Number one, all through the books of Acts, you hear about men doing stuff, right? And it's Paul this and Peter that and Stephen that. But I can tell you something. This is Luke's way of saying, you know what? The ladies were getting things done too. And in fact, Philip had four daughters who were so on fire that you know why they were unmarried? I think they're unmarried because they are so on fire for God, they probably scared some of the other guys away, right? Because this this these are strong women. I'm thinking they're like 14, 16, 18, and 20. These women are strong in the Lord. They're not pining away. They're not just kind of, you know, think about what the role of women was oftentimes in that context. Kind of behind the scenes, we kind of think of a Martha scenario. These are strong women. Ladies, we love you being committed to ministry. There's plenty out there for all of us to do, and I think these women evidence that. 
Now, they probably intimidated a few guys along the way. And by the way, that's the same problem we have in churches today. Some of you women are like, where are the men, right? And men, I'm not throwing you under the bus. I'm just trying to save my life because I'm going to give you a third interpretation in just a moment about what this could mean. I'm just kind of balancing the act here. But the bottom line is these women were committed. Here's another observation. If he's a traveling evangelist, he maybe wasn't as home as often as he could. Do we see any negative effect? Because we see so many times that kind of evangelists and pastors and preachers kind of sacrifice their family on the altar of the church. But there doesn't seem to be any negative effect on these girls because they're saying, I'm buying in, Dad. I'm all in. How can we help? We want to be involved in ministry with you. You know what does our hearts good as pastors is when we see you as families all in doing it together, moms, dads, kids, older kids, younger kids, committed to doing ministry together. I think they picked up on it, and I imagine these four girls were something to behold. Now, one other little idea, just I'm having fun with you. Read my lips. Fun, F-U-N. Ladies, do you think that if you're the one guy in a house with four other women, you might have tried to pray, Lord, would you call me to an evangelistic ministry where I can travel a bit? Maybe. I'm just, I'm just messing with you, right? We'll have a little fun here. But clearly, that household didn't lack for some opinions, I'm guessing, right? And so that, that, that's the third one you just throw away, and, and we're going to go with the first two. All right? So there we go. Philip the evangelist. Awesome. So the bottom line, bottom line in this section what a remarkable family, huh? What a remarkable family with a guy whose daughters loved the Lord and uh, followed him in ministry. Now, third vignette, third guy, Agabus' prophetic illustration, verses 10 and 11. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Wow, again, someone warning Paul, what you're about to do is going to cost you. And he does this physical illustration where he literally takes his belt off. Now, I don't know how he does this, how you bind your own hands and feet. That's like holding your breath and, you know, how, underwater. How long can you do that for? I don't know how he did it, but it's a physical illustration. They're going to tie you up, Paul. It's a prophetic announcement that you're going to be in prison in chains someday, and you ought to be careful about how you proceed. Now, notice he doesn't say, don't go. He's just saying, if you're going to go, this is what's going to happen to you. Now, that's in contrast to people today at times who say, you know, pastor, I've been praying, and God has a word for me about you. He says that you should start, and then he names a ministry, right? Have you ever had that? You know, hey, you should do this. That's not this guy. Agabus is a respected prophet. In fact, he predicted a famine, and you can take that to the bank. It happened back in chapter um, 11 during the reign of Emperor Claudius. So he's not a crackpot kind of guy who said, hey, the Lord spoke to me. He's hearing from the Lord. Now... What's interesting is there's a phrase in there, thus says the Holy Spirit. Where have we heard that in the Old Testament, but in a little different context? What did, was the phrase? When you know it was coming from God, the prophets would say, thus saith the Lord. 
In the New Testament, thus saith the Holy Spirit. By the way, another little sidebar, little, uh, another little way that we know that in the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is God, not just, you know, a little follower of Jesus and the Father, all right? He is fully God. So thus saith the Holy Spirit, he's emphasizing and proving to his leaders that no matter what happens to Paul, that it's part of God's or foreordained sovereignty that this is, this is part of God's plan. We know that suffering isn't something we love to do, but we know in the scriptures that oftentimes as Christians, you will suffer if you count the cost. And so Paul's arrest and ultimately the consequences are all part of the church's expansion. In fact, every time, and you can see this globally over 2,000 years, every time the church is under persecution, evangelism flourishes and the church grows. Look what happened in China during the seven, when the, the, all the years under atheism. The underground church flourished. Look what's going on in Iran today. Let's look, look what's going on in Iraq today. You don't know about it, but the f church is flourishing in places you think it's being stomped out. But it's coming at a cost, and Paul was well aware of that. So Paul's passionate invocation comes next in verses 12 through 13. When he heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, this same song, third time now. So the people who heard Agabus's prophecy say, Paul, 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 don't go, don't go. Then he answered, what are you doing? Weeping. So they're, they're not just saying don't go. They're crying. They're begging him. They're kind of maybe saying like their hands up. They're, they're, and it says it's breaking his heart. And he says this. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Imagine that scene. They're begging him not to go. People are crying. He says, you're breaking my heart, folks. But I'm ready. My time's come. And you can hear a pin drop because they get silent. And it's a God, Holy Spirit-induced, place and people listen to him and he says even if I have to die I'm gonna go third time Paul's urged to reconsider his plan but thoughtfully says I'm ready I'm ready by the way if you had to take three words that represent Paul I am ready that you see this throughout his life don't you I am ready. Look at it in Romans 1.15. I am ready to preach the gospel anywhere. I am ready to die for Christ at any time. Acts 21.13. I am ready to meet the Lord. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 7. That's a pretty simple philosophy of life. Preach, be ready to die, and go see Jesus, right? Pretty simple, but so hard to execute on. I look at that in my own life, and I feel a little at times like, man, these guys like Paul and Peter and Stephen, what would I do in, in the crucible of when it really comes right down to it? How would I respond? And by the way, most of us are not going to die for our faith. Most of us will never have a gun pointed at our head. But I am reminded when I'm in another country and we're doing evangelism that it isn't the same everywhere. And I pray uh, as God leads me in my spirit to pray for Christians all over the world who are suffering persecution, who are preaching, who are ready to die and have met 
Jesus. Now, for those of you who like to go a little deeper, for just a moment here, let me just digress on one little rabbit trail. The comparison between what happened to Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and Paul on his way to Jerusalem. This is an interesting set of four things that are true of both of them. Both of them uh, involve a plot by the Jews that they're going to be handled over the Gentiles. It happened to Jesus. It happened to Paul. Number two, there are triple predictions along the way that there'll be suffering in Jerusalem in both cases. Jesus got warned. Paul got warned three times. Both Jesus and Paul, number three, steadfastly resolved to go there in spite of what they know is going to happen and in despite of the opposition, Jesus and Paul. And lastly, both resigned themselves to do the will of the Father. Now, you say, what is connection between Paul and Jesus? Jesus is the role model for Paul as he faces certain death ultimately on his way to Jerusalem and then Rome. He knows the story of what Jesus did, and he's willing to follow ultimately in Jesus' footsteps. So it begs the question for us, hey, are we ready? Can, can we say that we'll be willing to go wherever God leads us? That's, a, that's an easy thing to say. It's a harder thing to do. And maybe you've had to live that out. I know for, for me, uh, for Cheryl and I, one of the, the first times that we really, the, the, kind of, the rubber met the road for us in ministry is when we spent our first 10 years in Huntington Beach doing ministry. That was awesome when you're young and 22 and a youth pastor. What a call. I'm suffering for Jesus in Huntington Beach. It's awesome, <laughs> right? And then God kind of knocks on the hearts, uh, knocks on our hearts and says, I'm calling you to go to Edina, Minnesota. <laughs> friends, 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 let's look at our geography here. Huntington Beach, warm, comfortable, casual. Edina, cold, frigid. The laid-back Christians, Minnesota, land of the frozen chosen. I mean, we got a big difference in geography and culture and style of ministry. He says, no, I want you to go. And I, I say that in jest because I'll tell you what, it was 14 years of the greatest 14 years in some ways because we raised our kids there. That's our kids. Those are their family friends that, and people in that era of our life. It's kind of what the Kegels are doing right now. They're raising their kids here for a 25, 30-year reign. I love it when he's like, Gag Nabbit, I've been here for 40 years. We're going we're gonna to get that playground finally done. We're going to get it done. I don't know why I do that. He sits there and just things come into my mind and they go out. And, and it says to me, don't say it. Oh, but I got to say it. Oh, I'm done. All right. But the bottom line is you've made choices, right? Where you've been called to do something. And it's like, okay, rubber's meeting the road. We, we can't, just, can't just ignore it. Now, We've already agreed that in all three cases, these people didn't get it wrong. The Holy Spirit was saying, Paul, be, just be aware, this is what's going to happen to you. But there are times, maybe in our lives, where we inadvertently, in our own lives, just discourage people from maybe uh, doing the right thing because of our own stuff that's going on with us. I, I was listening to a sermon by James McDonald, and he suggested these kind of three things that may be how we can hinder someone else from really following through on God's will. And again, that's not the case in this situation, but maybe just as insightful for us as we think about it as we relate to other people. Number one, it's hard to let go of people we love. These people love Paul, but they had heard from the Spirit. But sometimes 
It's hard for us to let people go. People we love or who may have to go to a faraway place. I'm going to say for sure there are going to be parents in this room because of the ministry of this church of kids going to Mexico, going to Russia, going to Italy, and all the places we've gone over the last several years that they're going to come knocking and say, Mom and Dad, God's put on my heart. I'm going to be a missionary, and I want to go to Afghanistan. I want to go to Iran. I want to go somewhere. I want to lay it on the line. And you're going to, your heart's going to be up in your throat, and you're, you're, and you're going to be tempted to say, Oh, but honey, honey, you know, you, got, you, you have so much. You just finished a four-year degree, you know. You went to USC, and it's all good. And, and yet we may love them so much and be well-intentioned, but don't get in between them and what God's calling them to do. Or maybe we love people so much, we just don't want them to suffer hardship. No one wants anybody to die for God, but it may happen. And so we're well-intentioned. Our vice may be skewed a bit as we talk to people about what it means to follow Jesus. And then thirdly, sometimes he says our, their total surrender makes our own obedience seem less sincere or less dedicated. In fact, their passion, in a sense, puts our commitment to shame because they're willing to lay it all out there. Here's what I found. When you are young, how many would say you are young? I'm not even going to define what young is. How many think you are young? Raise your hands. You're young. How many think you're kind of in the middle? How many are like, like four years and it's done? No, I'm just not. All right. We don't want to know what, we don't want anybody in that category. But the ones who, when you are young, here's something that I, I realized about my life. When I was young, we could do anything. There's no house payment. There's no spouse. There's no rent. I'm living with mommy and daddy. It is awesome. I get fed and life is good. Now, by the way, mommy and daddy, thank you for doing that because that's when I started doing stuff when I was 14 and 15 and mission trips and whatnot. And then as you get older, it's a little harder just to like leave it all go and I'm going to go do this. But you know what? There are people in this room who leave their professions for two or three weeks at a time and they're going and doing missions. They're doing evangelism. They're doing ministry stuff. So you're never too old to put it all out there. I just want to encourage you. It's not just for the young, but we can be committed to do stuff but we may not do it to the same degree when we have not as much, quote, at stake. So our pursuit of God's will is ultimately what this message is about and how we discern God's wisdom. And we have this last little nugget in verse 14. And I just want to ask you, how do we know God's will for our lives? It says, and since he, who's the he? Paul. Since Paul would not be persuaded... We, that means Luke and everybody who's trying to convince him not to, ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Kind of finale, let the will of the Lord be done. In other words, hey, he's not going to be convinced to not go, so let's lay off him, guys. Let's, he's going to do it, so let's not try to change his mind anymore. He's going to Jerusalem. Now, that being said, was this an issue of God's will or God's wisdom? So they're using the word God's will, and I believe it was God's will for him to do it. But I think in our context today, we believe that God's will involves this big white circle, which is called our life, all right? What do you see in this big white circle? Anything else? There is a black dot in the middle of that white circle. For some of us, we believe that God's will is that we have to find that dot for our life. And if we don't accomplish that task, 
then somehow we failed God. You might as well just cash it in. That is not God's will. I believe there's a difference in this context between God's will, which I believe in the Bible that's called God's moral will, versus God's personal plan for our lives. And what most of us wrestle with is not God's will. That's evident. I'm going to give you four examples of what God's will is. But for most of us, what we wrestle with is God's wisdom. What we need to ask for is God's wisdom. God's will is pretty clear. Are you tracking with me? I want to make sure we're clear on this. So the context is I don't believe that, that, that if you don't hit that dot, that somehow you're out of God's will. Let's, and by the way, one of the most influential books in my entire life I read in the early 70s called Decision Making and the Will of God by Gary Friesen. And it kind of debunks the, the, um, the myth of this whole idea that if you don't hit the dot, somehow you are out of God's will. I'll give you an example. It's 1974. I'm graduating from Covina High School. I've got a choice to make to college. How many of you have had to make college choices in the last several years? Anybody? I'm going to go five. Anybody made a college choice in the last five years? Some hands should go up. 10, 15, 20? None of you ever wrestled with going to college and where you're going to go? Come on here. Work with me. All right, so it's 1974, and I got a choice. Is it Biola, Azusa, Westmont, Brown University, Arizona State, they had all these different choices. Why? Brown University, that's not, gonna, that's not my deal. Arizona State, eh, I don't want to live, it's hot there. So it's really, come, and I want to go to Christian school. So it's Biola or, and maybe Azusa or Westmont, right? And so I prayed and prayed and prayed, and then remarkably, God answers. Now, how did he answer? In my case, he answered because Biola gave me money. And so that made the decision much, much easier, right? And so decision-making for some of us is, well, well, the circumstance helps inform that decision. Now, fast forward many years later, my daughter is in a decision, and she's come down to Biola and Azusa. This is not good. I'm a parent. I love her. This is like your daughter, if you're a USC guy, and your daughter says, I'm thinking about USC or UCLA. UCLA, are you kidding me? No, you wouldn't say that. You'd say, oh, Okay, okay, dear, whatever, whatever God's calling you to do, right? And so she's thinking about Azusa. They put the heat on her. They, she sat down with John Wallace, the president of Azusa Pacific. I'm going, that's a full court press. That is not fair. I don't even know the president of Bible at the time. And I just prayed, Lord, don't let me mess this up. I don't want to unduly influence her. Just like you're worth talking about here. I love her, but you know, Azusa. By the way, for all of you, I'm doing this. I wish Chad and Eric were here because it would be a lot more fun. They ended up at Azusa, right? And so she ultimately, through uh, her own prayer, ends up at Biola. <laughs> and, and the money I paid off people was so well done. No, I didn't. No, no, no. But she prayed about it. It was a big deal, right? I got married to this woman, Cheryl Ann Deal, 40 years ago in two weeks. And I know this dot theory kind of freaks you out to say, so like I've been told that God loves you and has one plan for your life for marriage. By the way, this book talks about singles, marriage, all kinds of decisions that maybe out of a planet of 6 billion people, maybe I could have been married to someone else. Now, 40 years later, I know she was God's will for my life because she's the only woman that would put up with me for 40 years. I'm just telling you, I'm a, I'm a blessed man, right? But God's moral or general will 
is what really you're referring to when you're saying, what is God's will for my life? There are 27 passages in the scripture that talk about the will of God. And these four passages I just selected because they're so direct about this is God's will concerning you. You want to know what God's will for your life is? I'm going to tell you right now. If any of you are wrestling with God's will, I'm going to give you four things that you shouldn't wrestle with. Take this to the bank. God wants this for your life. Here's the first one. For this is the will of God for your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. Your sexual purity is God's will for your life. Right? There's no question about that. There's no rolling the dice. There's no, I got to pray about this. That's God's will. Before marriage, being chaste, being pure. After marriage, honoring your marriage vows. No question. That's God's will. Number two. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Sustained thanksgiving. Give thanks. Look at that little word in there. What's the one you don't really want to see in this passage? Giving thanks in what? All things. You go, no, in all things? Yeah, all things. That's hard because when life is good, life is good, but in the hard times, so I still have to give thanks. God says give thanks in all things. Here's a third one. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Submissive behavior. In fact, it's referring to submission to government leaders, and it's making the point that essentially, by doing good, you rob others of accusing you and building a case against you by being submissive in your behavior. And then secured salvation. Look at this, John 6, 40. For this is the will of of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Secured salvation. In other words, you don't have to worry about it. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your savior, you don't have to worry about losing it. He wants you to know that your salvation is secure if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you've asked him to be your savior and Lord. Four things that are God's will for your life. You don't have to question it. You don't have to pray about it. Do it. It says right there. And so what I think for most of us today, as we wrap this message up, is that we need to know the difference if we're in a God's will situation, like a thus saith the Lord situation, or if we're in a God's wisdom situation where we just need to make a, a wise choice. Because there's a lot of choices out there that God says, you know what? I'm giving you the freedom to make that choice. You can go left, you can go right, you can go straight, you can go back. It's your choice. And so we got to know what we're talking about. So to be clear, if it's a God's will thing, it's going to be clear in the scripture. It's his moral will for you. And there's many of those things. You don't have to debate those things. But if it's a wisdom issue, then there are two practical suggestions I'll give you today as we wrap up. Number one, we need to ask for God's wisdom. We need to ask for God's wisdom. James says in 1 verse 5 that if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. In other words, ask him. He wants to, to, to give you a sense of assurance in that decision. And then secondly, we need to make wise decisions. We need to make wise decisions. Look at Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. By a show of hands, and I normally we do this with our heads bowed, but just for a moment as Chad comes up to walk up, 
How many of you have probably had to make a, a pretty significant decision about something in your life in this past year? Now, raise them high, and I just want you to all look around here. Look at how many people are, have had to make major, major decisions. Now, when you're making that decision, it would have been awesome to know that you're not missing God's perfect divine dot in the middle of the circle for your life, huh? Because there are times you make a decision, and then James says, if you waver on that, man, you're like the surface sea driven and tossed by the wind. And I want to just encourage you, whatever decision you're making, if you're walking with the Lord, if Jesus is a part of the priority of your life that you want to honor him, he's going to use that decision, whether he went left or he went right. I've second-guessed myself over time uh, on a few things. But if I look at this text, what do I take away? I, I realize God's sovereign. Even if I made the wrong decision, if I made a bad decision or a less than adequate decision, he can handle it. He can work through it. How about when I did something that I really messed it up? I just sinned. I screwed it up so bad. That couldn't have been God's will. We know that. You know what's awesome about when you make really bad decisions? Is we've got a great redeemer who forgives you. Who says, yeah, you're a knucklehead. Yeah, pretty much. But he's in the purpose of reclaiming folks who are beating themselves up for a decision that they regret. And you've begged for a do-over. Thank goodness we have the example of Paul who followed God. He did it with all of his heart. They had well-intentioned friends who also heard from the Lord and said, hey, but count the cost. And he still counted the cost and he, and he didn't waver. And today we have that same Holy Spirit power who can give you direction in the big decisions of life. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, I'm so glad today that you're bigger than the dot, that when we need your wisdom, we can ask for it. We're so glad we have Paul's life as an example of he counted the cost, he got advice. Even when people said, don't go, he went. Give us that courage. Give us Holy Spirit courage to go where you call us, to take us where you want. And may we be living in the realization that you're always sovereign you are still on the throne and we thank you for giving us wisdom in these choices in jesus name amen amen